chapter 1. We'll focus on verses 4 through 16, but we'll read the entire chapter. It can be found on page 774 in the Bibles in the pew. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let us pray together and ask the Lord's help as we seek to understand his word. Father God, this is a familiar story. It's one that we know, and yet God is one that shows us the relentless pursuit of your grace towards sinners like us. God, would you open our eyes by your spirit to the truth of your grace. May we appreciate it. May we worship you as a result of it. Lead us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Three years ago, the video cameras captured an impressive feat. It may be the greatest escape ever, or at very least, a supreme display of persistence. Of course, I am referring to that famous baby iguana from Planet Earth Season 2. For those unfamiliar, go home and look up the video later today. Those four minutes will be well worth it. Unless the sight of reptiles makes you a little bit squeamish, then you can just take my word for it. To summarize, in a questionable parenting move, Adult iguanas lay their eggs in the middle of this beach that is secured from the water by a wall of rocks. The warm sand helps to incubate the eggs until hatching, while the rock itself is a fortress to keep the water from drowning these eggs, destroying all the baby iguanas. 
Now, once these little lizards hatch and wiggle to the surface, all they simply need to do is traverse the long beach, scale the jagged rock to reach the water. Oh yeah, and the beach is also occupied by snakes, fast snakes, not just a few, not just a handful, but thousands and thousands of snakes. So once a baby iguana decides to actually run for it, the snakes literally pour out of every hole, rock, and crack. There is seemingly no end to the number of snakes on this hunt. Again, if reptiles make you squeamish, don't watch the video. Some iguanas actually make it about halfway, while others get one look at the sun before they are snagged by a snake for an easy meal. I don't know the actual rate of success, but I can imagine that it is extremely low for these poor baby iguanas. But the famous iguana? While certainly not the only survival, his tale is one of great persistence. The clip, four minutes, is truly a dramatic clip. The iguana successfully dodges his first pursuers, only to have them literally run into him during his short moment of rest to catch his breath. So he takes off again towards this long straightaway, and the snakes come out of every rock, hole, and cranny to catch him. And at one point, it appears as though this iguana has met his demise. A small group of snakes actually grab him and start to squeeze. It looks like his life has come to an end. Only a loophole literally appears in the snake, in the, the, the collection of snakes, amidst all the constricting, and the iguana squeezes out and is off and running yet again. And then he finally reaches the wall, only to have two snakes actually get their teeth into him. But he still scales the wall, and he dangles by a few uh, moments of claw holding on one occasion. But we see eventually that this little lizard's persistence finally pays off. There's no number of snakes. There's no amount of rocks or a rock wall that could keep him from getting to the safety of that water. He was persistent. He was determined. He was relentless. As we come to this part in our story in Jonah, we are confronted with something far more persistent than a baby iguana running for its life. Like the iguana, this persistent thing is met by obstacles, mainly the stubborn rebellion, persistence even, of sinful men. But in the end, such rebellion proves to be no match. The bulk of chapter 1 in Jonah emphasizes the persistent, relentless grace of God towards sinners. It is constant. It is abundant. It will not be defeated. And it is not only Jonah that God's grace has in its crosshairs. For even the idol-worshiping, superstitious sailors will not escape the persistent grace of God. They will get swept away in its current. They will see it. They will experience it. They will stand amazed by it. And in doing so, they encourage us to do the same. So Jonah 1 tells us to worship God who in grace persistently pursues sinners like you and me. Worship God who in grace persistently pursues sinners like you and me. My hope is that this will be emphasized as we work through just two points. The outpouring of God's persistent grace is abundant. And the outcome of God's persistent grace is amazing. The outpouring is abundant. The outcome is amazing. We begin with the outpouring of God's persistent grace is abundant. God reveals his grace throughout this chapter in a variety of ways. In Jonah chapter 1, we see that God is abundantly 
gracious. We first see it in there is grace through the storm. Verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. It is not merely that the grace of God appears in the storm. No, it is actually that the uncontrollable storm is God's grace in pursuit of Jonah. Remember, Jonah is off to Tarshish, which is likely off the southern coast of Spain. He's going all the way across the Mediterranean to get away from the presence of the Lord, as we read in, in verse 3. And he thinks he's in the clear. But surprisingly, Jonah's, Jonah finds that God's grace is in pursuit of him. It is on his tail. Greater still, it is actually ahead of him. It is right there with Jonah. Jonah is about to learn the truth behind David's words in Psalm 139. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The Lord meets Jonah in verse 4. But the Lord hurled, is, it's not as noticeable in English, but in Hebrew it is striking. For those of you unfamiliar, typically in the Hebrew, the verb always comes first. The subject comes after the verb. So in English, it would sound like, hurled the Lord. But on rare occasions, the subject does come first to start a sentence. And when this happens, it's for emphasis. It's for clarity. And this is how the author constructs the first line of verse 4. He says, the Lord hurled the storm. He makes it abundantly clear that this storm is not a random mixing of fronts. This storm is not a rare wind that just comes up upon the sea. This is the Lord in grace, calling out to Jonah, pursuing Jonah. And while the sailors and possibly Jonah may be left to wonder where this storm is coming from, the author tells us very clearly it is from the Lord. The Lord has come to meet Jonah. But we also see that Jonah is not the only one who is being pursued. Listen to how the sailors respond to God's grace coming to them in the form of a storm. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now we must acknowledge that these sailors are no chumps. These guys are experienced and seasoned sailors. They know the ins and outs of sailing. They knew the ins and outs of the Mediterranean Sea. They would know the trouble spots. They would know where to avoid a squall here or there was nothing that they would actually panic about. But even they recognize this storm is different. It has a purpose to it. And so what do the sailors do? They do what we would do. They panic. It's the only thing they can do. They're filled with terror. They sense that death is an actual reality staring them in the face. Again, this seems a little bit odd that God in his grace would scare the life out of these men. Our human ears, it, it almost sounds cruel and it sounds harsh. It sounds almost similar to the way my older brother, what he would do to me for fun and laughs, such things like igniting his spray deodorant as soon as I walked in the room. Certainly gave me a scare, but I would not consider that to be a, an evidence of his grace towards me in that moment. But thankfully, God is not a cruel older brother. 
he is beginning what we will ultimately see is the transformation in the lives of these sailors. As his grace works in them, we will see that they will be shaken from their false worship, from their false gods, from these gods that have no control, no ability to save, and ultimately nothing to offer. These sailors find that they are drastically overmatched. The author plays a little word game here when he says, the Lord hurls a storm, and the only thing the the sailors can do is hurl the cargo. Their response to the Lord hurling winds and thunder and lightning is, we can take a box and throw it off the ship. It's almost laughable at what they are trying to do in the midst of this storm. It scares them to the reality that the Lord of heaven and earth actually exists. And it moves them towards desperation, away from self-reliance. But we also see that, that God's grace is not only abundant in the storm, but later on it becomes abundant in the casting of lots. Seems a little, little odd. But the, the sailors gather when they find it could be Jonah who's at fault here, and they say, come, let us cast lots, that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. This might seem a bit confusing. How does rolling dice function as evidence of God's grace? Well, for one, we know that Scripture makes it clear that like the storm, the Lord is sovereign over even something as seemingly insignificant as the casting of lots. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This casting of a lot was not a random rolling by a bunch of sailors. It was intentional. It was fixed by the same God who sent this storm as a testament of his grace. And it will work to serve his ends. And what are those ends? It is ultimately to expose Jonah's rebellion and confront his sin. Again, Jonah deserves judgment, even death, for hearing the command of the Lord and running in the complete opposite direction. This lot will draw him out, but not for judgment. It will direct him. It will guide him. Sure, Jonah is going to be humiliated when his sin is finally identified by these wicked sailors. But it will keep Jonah from continuing to run on his path of rebellion. But we also see another source of God's grace, and it comes through an almost unexpected means. It comes through these pagan, wicked, idolatrous sailors. These sailors become agents of God who confront Jonah and expose him. They almost become a prophet to the prophet of the Lord. While they don't speak a word directly given by the Lord, they speak words of truth, words of revelation that would be hard for Jonah to miss. We see the captain being the first to do so. He says in verse um, 5, 6, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now the captain does not know this, but God is using him to wake Jonah, not physically, but from a spiritual stupor. And it is actually the captain who utters almost the exact same command that God gave Jonah in verse 2. Arise, call out. I don't think Jonah would have missed this. For all his attempts to run and to hide, The Lord has met Jonah right there in the dark recesses of that ship with the same command he gave him in verse 2. Arise, call out. 
And of course, we know that the calling out is the last thing that Jonah wants to do. But in that moment, Jonah sees that God is not finished with him. He at least gets a hint that he will not get what he wants. Tarshish will not be his final destination point. But then we see the sailors themselves also confront him after they cast the lots. They, they, they bombard him with questions. Tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? They're asking for answers. And while these questions seem rather straightforward, they are religiously packed. They would force Jonah to reveal his religious identity, who he belonged to. There was no way that Jonah could skirt out of revealing just who it was he was running from. He could not avoid the answer. His hiding was over. He was the man responsible for the evil, which is the same word God used to describe the people of Nineveh. And this evil had come to the ship. Jonah, the prophet of God, had brought evil and wickedness to the ship of sailors. And then, if that's not enough, they land a haymaker in verse 10. What is this that you have done? These words are infamous throughout the Old Testament. And Jonah would have been familiar with them. They are indicting words, pointing out sin and guilt. They are words usually spoken by the Lord or his servants. Adam and Eve heard them in Genesis 3 after eating the fruit. What is this you have done? Cain heard them in Genesis 4 after murdering his brother. What is this you have done? The people of Israel heard them in Judges 2 after they failed to obey the Lord's command to conquer the land. And King Saul would hear them twice from the prophet Samuel and ultimately lead him to have the kingdom stripped from him and given to David. And now Jonah hears them. But it's not from the Lord, it is from the lips of pagan sailors. Jonah's sin has been revealed and it is they who declare him guilty. And this all culminates at the end in them being the ones to essentially carry out God's will for Jonah. They toss him overboard, forcing him to face the Lord, either in life, by some miraculous fish, or in death. But lastly, we also see that grace is abundantly poured out in God's resistance. Despite, and this is more towards the sailors, despite being instruments through whom God's grace flows, these sailors we still see have a lot to learn. They see that God sent the storm. They see that it was through them that God exposed Jonah as the source of their trouble. And they see that God has actually revealed himself to be the true God. And yet they're still not totally convinced. This is what they do in verse 13 after Jonah tells them what the solution should be. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. God, in his grace, will push back against the sailors' feeble attempts to save themselves. He will pressure them to abandon all hope but himself. He will bring them, these sailors, to the point of brokenness. They will have no place to go, nowhere to look for salvation, except in the Lord of heaven and earth. And just as God has been graciously resisting Jonah's efforts to flee from him, we also see here that he is graciously resisting the sailors' efforts to live life ignorant of him. 
Like Jonah, they will have to face him. And in his grace, they face him here instead of when it's too late. All of these are but a taste of how God daily and abundantly pours out his grace upon rebellious, ignorant, and sinful people. People like you, people like me. He brings storms to shake us from our self-confidence. They show us our need for and dependence upon him for all things. Sometimes he even scares us so that we might turn and run to him. He shakes the very sources of our comfort. He shakes the very foundations of our false refuges. At other times, he brings people and circumstances into our lives to reveal our sin. Sometimes they're close friends. Sometimes they're family. Sometimes they're even complete strangers. But they see our blind spots, those areas where our rebellion still clings, and they bring them into the light, sometimes rather painfully. But these outpourings of grace are displays of God's fatherly discipline, as Hebrews 12 tells us. They're intended to wean us from our love of self to the love of Christ and our growth in holiness. And he also, in grace, actively resists our efforts to do things in our own pride and in our own strength, to be like those sailors. He will expose our weakness so that we might see the greatness of his strength. May we open our eyes not only to the beautiful and wonderful displays of God's grace, which are certainly all around us and certainly should warrant our worship, but may we also see them in some of these more difficult and humbling displays of his grace. And may we allow God's spirit to work in and through them to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. The outpouring of God's persistent grace is abundant. But we also see that the outcome of God's persistent grace is amazing. God's grace brings about his purposes in the lives of those it works in and those it works through. Now, truth be told, we don't immediately know where we leave off the outcome for Jonah. The story ends with him being tossed overboard and, as far as we know, left to drown. His heart will not be fully revealed until chapters 2 and then again in chapters 4. And at the risk of giving a spoiler, the book is going to end in kind of a cliffhanger when it comes to Jonah's ultimate response to God's grace. Will he be softened by it or will he be hardened by it? So on the one hand, it is safe to say the outcome for Jonah remains to be seen. We don't know how God's amazing grace is going to bear fruit in his life. However, even in chapter 1, we can see there are glimpses of change, even if they're only subtle. For in the beginning, we see that Jonah is still in the midst of his downward spiral. He went down to Joppa in in verse 3, and then down into the ship in verse 3 again. And then in 4, he goes down deeper into the ship. Jonah is seeking to get away from God. By not only moving west, he's moving south. He's moving down. He's hiding. He's chosen to take this ride in the dark. And God's grace brings him out of the dark and into the light. Even if he remains unwilling, and even if he is still resistant, we can safely say Jonah is no longer hiding. He's also slightly less callous. When the captain first came to him, Jonah never gives a response. It's almost a silent, awkward pause, no answer. 
Jonah, we've seen, does not care about the fate of the sailors. It is of no concern to him. His sleeping at least proves this much. He showed little concern for how his sin affected those around him. He didn't care if they got swept up in his rebellious mess. And before moving, this serves as an obvious reminder for all of us that our sin rarely occurs in a vacuum. It typically affects other people, sometimes in disastrous ways. Our spouse, our children, our friends, sometimes complete strangers. So as God's grace reveals the harm of our sin, may we be faithful, not like Jonah, in pursuing forgiveness. But we do see that by the end of the story, Jonah has started to move towards the sailors. He is at least engaging them. He's still a little bit emotionless. He's still a little bit callous. And he is still yet to cry out to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. In all honesty, it appears that he is more giving in because he's got no other choice to do. He's got no other option. Everything is clearly his fault. He can't escape this harsh reality. But again, God's persistence has stopped his running. Jonah is no longer heading in the direction of Tarshish. He is no longer hiding in the dark recesses of the ship. He is no longer asleep to the grace of God on display around him. And probably most significant, his offering himself to be thrown overboard is him finally submitting to the Lord. He's probably convinced it means his death, but he is surrendering himself to what the Lord would do with him. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. That doesn't sound like it carries the expectation of rescue. He may do so willingly or reluctantly, but Jonah is finally throwing himself into the hands of God. And at the very least, that's a step closer than where he was when this storm first hit. But it is the sailors, not Jonah, who are the real winners in this part of the story. For we see in them a full 180 as they experience and encounter God's persistent grace. The sailors, in short, are transformed from pagan worshipers to true worshipers. They progress from the beginning to the end of this story in stages. We see in the beginning of the story, they're in fear of the storm in verse 5. The men were exceedingly afraid. And then we see when Jonah makes his confession, their fear moves from the storm to the one who sent the storm. They fear exceedingly that it is the Lord who had made the sea and the dry land is the one who has sent the storm. And then by the end of the story, they appeal to the Lord for mercy on account of the action they are about to take against Jonah. They acknowledge that his control is sovereign, not only over the storm, but over all things. And this culminates in the end in true and genuine worship. Now, some scholars are a little bit iffy as to whether or not these sailors actually converted. They like to think that the sailors simply added Jonah's God to the top of their list, that the sacrifices and the vows were typical religious expressions of that day. I, however, am not convinced. For the writer clearly uses the term Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, in the mariner's prayer. It's the covenant name of the Lord that's been given to Israel. These sailors, having witnessed the grace and mercy of the Lord, it is to him then that they make their appeal. And they do so two times. They say, O Lord, let us not perish. You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They witness firsthand the Lord is unlike any God that they know. He is in a category all to himself, 
There is none to which he can be prepared, compared. But it isn't just the name that they use. Their reverent fear leads them to worship. This chapter ends with the men fearing the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Sacrifices and vows, while general religious activities, can also be very specific. In Psalm 116, they are mentioned as proper responses by the Lord's people as they experience his mercy, his grace, and his kindness towards them. It is actually a mark of the servant of the Lord to give sacrifices and vows. That psalm says in verse 1, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. We see the sailors make a plea for mercy. O Lord, I am your servant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. God, in his persistent grace towards Jonah, poured out that same grace upon these sinful and idolatrous sailors. And as a result, they became his own. The God of Jonah became the God of these sailors too. And this is the work that God continues to do today. He pours out his grace again and again upon sinners to turn them from enemies to friends, from rebels to servants, from sons of disobedience to sons of God. Does this not stir our hearts within us for worship, for fear towards our gracious God? Does it not make us delight when he uses people like us and churches like ours to bring sinners to himself? That's why we send people to the likes of Juarez, Mexico. That's why we're involved in all the ministries that we're a part of, declaring God's grace that is offered daily and repeatedly to sinners. For those of us who are in Christ, this is our story. God has and continues to transform us daily by his grace. May we praise him daily for his grace. And for those of you who may be here and do not claim Christ, this can be your story. Your presence here this morning is at the very least a testament of God's persistent grace towards you. Follow the lead of the sailors. Turn from your sin, from your idolatry to the forgiveness and the new life offered by God of grace and mercy. His grace is for you as well as it is for me. And obviously this abundant outpouring and this amazing outcome of God's grace all points us forward to Jesus Christ. The incarnate God who from, who's, from whose fullness, John tells us, we have received grace upon grace. As we read earlier in Mark 4, Jesus is the same Lord over heaven and earth and the sea. He does as he pleases. And yet he is also the one who endured the storm. Not a storm of God's grace, but the full storm of God's wrath against sin. Your sin, my sin. And he offered himself as a gracious solution to our problem to our rebellion, to our sin. He was not fixing, he was not, this was not Jonah fixing a problem that he caused. Jesus gave himself to die to fix the problem that we had caused so that we might turn in worship and in trust. Jesus Christ is the full and final picture of God's persistent grace towards sinners. It is through him that we have been changed from rebels, rebel sinners to redeem saints eager to worship our Savior. A former college football coach once told his players to paralyze resistance with persistence. It's a mouthful. It's a catchy ring, 
I can imagine it was put on a mug or maybe a t-shirt somewhere in Ohio where this uh, coach made himself famous. And we began this morning with a baby iguana who maybe personified that quote rather well. In the, flight, the fight for his life, this particular lizard would not be defeated. His persistence certainly paralyzed the snakes and the rocks resisting him. The grace of God, though, does not simply paralyze whatever it resists. It certainly can and does, but it ultimately defeats it. It overcomes it. The persistent outpouring of God's abundant grace means nothing can or will ultimately stand against it. He poured out his grace over and over to Jonah and over and over to these sailors. And in doing so, he spared a rebellious prophet and turned idol worshipers to himself in faith. And again, the good news is that God continues to, do, to pursue this same thing today. He does this daily in the lives of his people, turning them from sin to obedience. And he does it in the lives of his former enemies, now redeemed children. May we worship God who in grace persistently pursues sinners like you and me. Let us pray. Father God, we praise you for your persistent grace. And God, we confess that even those of us who are in Christ continue to push against your grace. And we thank you that you will not let us win. We thank you that in your grace you throw storms at us, you bring people into our lives. God, that you do your work of grace in our hearts. And we pray that we would cooperate with your spirit daily. And we pray that for any in here who do not claim Christ, that in your grace you would continue to pursue them and to draw them closer to yourself. Turn them to faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.